Let's pray. Lord, I ask you to please help me to deliver this sermon to your people in the right way, Lord, and uh, that you will speak to our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue our study of the seven churches of Revelation, and today we look at the church of Thyatira. Now, we don't know too much about the city of Thyatira. There's not much written about it, other than it had a magnificent temple to the female goddess Artemis, and that it was a city of commerce situated between two river valleys with more known trade guilds than any other Asia Minor city. It was the city of Lydia, a trader of purple, that the Apostle Paul met in Philippi, quite a distance from Thyatira, and she became the first believer in Philippi and opened her home to other disciples there. Now, we don't know if Lydia ever returned to Thyatira, but she could have, wanting to share the gospel with her family and friends there. But the church in Thyatira likely grew out of the church in Ephesus, like the others in that area. And Jesus said to John in verse 18 of the second chapter of Revelation, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write these things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Jesus again begins with a self-description, and this time as the Son of God, with eyes like fire and feet like brass, piercing eyes that can see and know all things and all thoughts of every person. His brass feet represent, no doubt, the perfect strength of his rule. He says to the church in verse 19, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So he lists the works of the church of Thyatira, and they were good works, love, service, faith, and patience. These are gifts of the Holy Spirit, gifts and fruit of the Spirit. Most importantly, love is listed. And Jesus says, as for your works, the last are more than the first. They were growing in their works, improving in all these good things, adding to them, just the opposite of the church of Ephesus that had lost their first love. This church was obviously alive, and that was commendable. Can we say that about our church today? That's debatable. I wish and pray it were true, but I don't see it being demonstrated all that much. It's easy to blame our circumstances of late, but it should disturb us as a body that we don't look very alive. And we should be inquiring of the Lord as to why that is so. Maybe it's a pastoral issue. Please pray for me. 
I did hear some good news about our church plants, one of our church plants parishioners leading four people to Christ recently at the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa. At our most recent Anna Clergy Zoom meeting, a lady shared the Chinese characters for the word crisis. They are two characters put together, representing the word danger and the word opportunity. And she shared how Christians in Hong Kong seize the opportunity in the 2020 protest to share the gospel. We too should be praying and grabbing opportunities like that and encouraging one another in sharing the gospel. Would we be ready as a church to rise at a moment's notice and disperse the gospel? Should we not have had a visible presence, perhaps in the flooding crisis a few years back? We should be speaking out more for Jesus. Recently, I got a little political on Facebook and I felt convicted that I haven't been using Facebook to share the gospel as much as I have my political views. That's gotta change. Where's my passion there? Are we hearing and speaking what God is saying to us and what he wants us to say to those around us? As a pastor, I get questions from strangers now and then when they find out what I do for a living. Questions like, do you think God is involved in the pandemic? Well, what about you? Do you get questions like that? Do people realize that you represent Jesus Christ? A few years ago, I was encouraged to hear that someone from our church was pointed to as the one to talk to in a crisis at his workplace. And I was also encouraged that another parishioner took on the role of an unofficial chaplain in the CHSLD where she worked during the crisis, when no one from the outside could be brought in. These are good news stories, and I'd like to hear more of them. Are we all ready for that kind of thing? We should be. If not, we should at least start getting ready. First Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Second Timothy 4 says, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. In verse 20 of Revelation 2, Jesus changes his focus from the good to the bad in this, at the, in this church, the church of Thyatira. He says, nevertheless, I have found a few things against you. Now, because of what we 
read about the other churches, a similar thing in the other churches, we might find ourselves saying, here we go again. Why can't Jesus just let some things slide? Why is Jesus so particular? Well, it's because the church is Jesus's bride and he wants a pure bride when he returns and he is returning soon. What is the downside of the church in Thyatira? Jesus says, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants and to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And our jaw drops thinking, how could that happen in the church that Jesus said was so good otherwise? How could the leadership of that church allow a false prophet to teach evil things in the church? Well, some guess that it was compromised, perhaps with the local government, like when the communist governments allow some official churches to operate as long as they follow their rules so that they can keep control of them. Others think it could be also like when the Jesuits brought Catholic Christianity to South America and, and kind of synchronized it with the pagan religions from there. That can never work. The church in South America is suffering to this day from that mistake. But I think it's simpler than that because I've lived it personally right here in Canada in a church that many of us were part of. I doubt if Jezebel was the actual name of the leader in the church of Thyatira who was seducing, the, seducing Jesus' servants there. After all, who would name their child Jezebel after one of the most wicked people ever mentioned in the Bible? The name itself means, where is the prince of the underworld? Jezebel, of course, was the wicked wife of King Ahab, the queen of Israel, though she wasn't even an Israelite. She was the daughter of the king of Tyre, um, who King Ahab of Israel took as a wife, even though marrying foreign wives was forbidden by God. King Ahab was wicked. He built the temple for Baal and worshipped that foreign god. But in comparison to Jezebel, he looked pretty good. Jezebel massacred all the prophets of the Lord except for the hundred that Obadiah hid in caves and fed. And she was the arch enemy of the Lord's great prophet Elijah. She put a hit out on him as well. She used her husband's authority to do many wicked things. She wrote letters in his name and used his seal to have innocent people killed. And no one dared to stand up to her, not even those who had dared to stand up to her husband, the king. They obeyed her orders, even to the point of killing many innocent people 
much like Nazi Germany. And the king kind of liked it because he got what he wanted without doing the blatantly evil works himself. First Kings 21.25 says, There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Well, what does that have to do with Thyatira? Well, the church in Thyatira was being stirred up to do wickedness by a wicked female leader, someone who the other leaders had embraced, a self-proclaimed prophetess who should never have been given a position of leadership in the first place. And she used the power that was allowed her by men. Jezebel was the name that Jesus gave this wicked teacher in the church of Thyatira to reveal to those who were in doubt just what Jesus thought of her. She called herself a prophetess. In other words, she claimed to speak for God. But Jesus showed with this condemnation of her that she did not. Now we saw sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols was happening in the church of Pergamos as well that we went over last week. Well, how does what was happening in the church of Thyatira differ? In Pergamos, it was lay people who were causing others to sin that way, while in Thyatira, it was a leader. Where can we see that sort of thing in a modern day church example? Well, very clearly, we can see it in the diocese that we left 13 years ago. Its root failure was in the men who were afraid to quell radical feminism and who gave some radical feminists authority. I was personally taught in seminary, but by two radical feminists. Both were Anglican priests. One of them is well known to say shocking sexually perverted things in class that I can't even repeat in public. And she had been ordained under a good Christian bishop in Montreal some 20 years earlier, perhaps the last one. He opened the door. He was responsible. All I can say is that he must have had fear and lacked discernment because of all the women who are, who are radical feminists today and ordained under his time as bishop. All my complaining about this teacher to my bishop 20 years ago did nothing. In fact, he and everyone else, even the seminary principal, was afraid of this woman. And there was another one too, the executive archdeacon of the bishop who I dealt with. In my dealings with the bishop, 
we generally work things out together. It was only when I, when his archdeacon got involved, and she always did, that things would go south fast. I would finish a meeting with the bishop after being summoned downtown for some issue, and I'd be satisfied with what we had worked out, only to go home and to receive a phone call from his executive archdeacon full of angry threats. And I'd think to myself, why is she stirring the pot? What does it have to do with her? I hadn't realized yet that she was another Jezebel. She was married to a priest in the diocese, but was ruling with the bishop already. And not long afterward, she ended up running off with the bishop too. And to my knowledge, no one in our former diocese made a fuss about it just as they didn't make a fuss when I was fired. The spirit of Jezebel usurps authority when fearful and lazy men allow it to. What is the spirit of Jezebel? It is radical feminism, and it has infiltrated many churches because of the failure of men. It started out good. It started out as simple feminism. And we are all taught that feminism is good because at its most basic level, it stands for equal rights for women. Everyone should want equal rights for every law-abiding citizen, male or female. And we would all be feminists in that regard, in that definition of the word. Well, where did feminism and radical feminism come from? You might be surprised, but it was birthed in the church. If you look at the history of feminism, it was a movement that had its roots in the evangelical church. It can be traced back to the Women's Christian Temperance Union in 1873, whose stated purpose was to create a sober and pure world by abstinence, purity, and evangelical Christianity. An impossible goal, by the way. They were not the first or the biggest temperance group. The American Temperance Society was much bigger. It started in 1826, but that was run by men. And that was only against hard liquor. Beer and wine were okay. The Constitution of the Women's Christian Temperance Union called for the entire prohibition of manufactured and sale of intoxicating liquors as beverages. The early leaders of the WCTU met each other at Dwight L. Moody's revival meetings. Why was the WCTU started? It was started because of alcoholism, especially among men. Alcoholism was out of control in the United States at the time. And along with alcoholism came domestic abuse and many other ills of society. And these Christian women 
had become fed up with it, and rightly so. But they had little power to change things at the time, so they did well to focus on suffrage, the women's, women's right to vote, and they won that. And now they had real power of sway, and sway they did. Prohibition and women's rights, women's right to vote came just about at the same time in 1920. And that was what scholars today call first wave feminism. And it was good. The overall health of America improved greatly in those years because of it. But the second and longest serving president of the WCTU was both a Christian and a radical feminist who argued that women were moral, morally superior to men. She influenced the next generation with her ideas and from them grew second wave feminism, which focused on cultural inequalities, gender norms, and the role of women in society. During second wave feminism, traditional roles of women, such as homemakers, secretaries, and any role that served a man was beginning to be looked down upon by radical feminists. Women began to take places that traditionally were, were filled by men, even in the church. And at the same time, men began taking roles that were traditionally filled by women. Second wave feminism from the 60s, from the 1960s to the 1980s also focused a lot on women's liberation and freedom from male dominance in every arena, especially their bodies. It argued for women's reproductive rights, my body, my choice. But the problem with that for a married woman, as well as for married men, is that that stance is against what the Bible says. You see, 1 Corinthians 7, 4 to 5 says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And second wave feminism went from there. It went from contraception and birth control rights exclusively for women to the right to have an abortion. It went on from there. What happened with third and fourth wave feminism, nobody seems to completely agree on, but what seems to have happened is sexual liberation from original norms and finally all of this gender dysphoria that we see today. It's pure confusion. And it's the end result of radical feminism. Well, how does this all relate to our text in Revelation and to the church? Well, today, the diocese that we left holds regular queer masses they marry same-sex couples, 
and they no longer consider fornication or sodomy a sin. But guess what? Jesus still does. And Jesus said this in verse 21 of chapter 2 of Revelation. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Verse 22, indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I'll kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. Well, remember those flaming eyes of fire. That is what Jesus is saying. And he goes on, I will give to each one, I will give to each one of you according to your works. Well, what happened to the church was the devil deceived it first in the home then in the church the late Adrian Rogers a pastor said this the devil today has tried to obliterate the difference between the sexes under the guise of making men and women equal, he's tried to make them the same. Men and women are equal before God. Galatians 3.28 says, In Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew or Greek. We are all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. But equality of worth is not the sameness of function. God has made the husband to be the head of the home, not the boss of the home. There is a difference between bossiness and headship. When the husband is the head of the home, that simply means he has a responsibility. It doesn't mean he has superiority, but he has a certain responsibility. And I believe it's similar in the church. There are many different views of a woman's role in the church today, even in our own denomination. And we clearly see women deaconesses and women prophetesses already in the New Testament, in the New Testament times recorded in the Bible. Women did have leadership roles to some extent. The passage we are studying in Revelation is a negative reference to that very thing. But we also find positive references with Priscilla in Acts and Chloe in 1 Corinthians. And there were, of course, female evangelists. The woman at the well, for instance, with Jesus, even as an outcast, went and told people of her town what Jesus had said, and many Samaritans of the city believed in Jesus because of the word of the woman who testified. 
Mary Magdalene was the first person who the resurrected Jesus appeared to, and she was sent by him to tell the apostles. Women clearly had huge roles of influence in the church and even supported Jesus as he walked this earth and his disciples. Yet no female apostles were named or appointed by Jesus. And yes, he could have if he wanted to. He showed no partiality. And I, and I realized personally that I couldn't make it as a minister in Jesus's church without both Jesus and Maria holding me up. Jesus sent Maria to minister to me. Both my first ministry supervisor and my first spiritual director were women and not radical feminists, and I gained much knowledge from them. But I can say this, ever since radical feminists with the spirit of Jezebel were allowed to teach and to take leadership roles in the church, the church was on its way to judgment. Jesus went on to the church of Thyatira in verse 24 saying now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira as many as do not have this doctrine who have not known the depths of Satan as they say I will put on you no other burden but hold fast to what you have till I come and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. So if we, were, if we are faithful with little, Jesus will give us much. They, Jesus' opponents, he says, shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus goes on, as I also have received from my Father, I will give him, that is the messenger of the faithful church, the morning star. Again, that is a reference to Jesus himself. He goes on in verse 29, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, as a church, we did well to make our stand and to go through our crisis 14 years ago. Many other churches in many different denominations are going through the same crisis now. We must pray for them and help them any way we can. The deceiver is working overtime. But the good news is that Jesus is working too and he's refining his church. He asks us to hold fast to what we have until he comes. In verse 26, he says, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him will I give 
power over the nations. So what are we to overcome? We are to overcome evil, overcome the devil's deception, overcome fear, laziness, and overcome the sins of Jezebel. We overcome them by Christ and with his firm order and rule, with discernment and truth and with love. And if we overcome, we will rule with him. Let's pray. Lord God, as we see so many changes in our world, so many rapid changes, it is a fearful thing, Lord. So we thank you that you've given us your word to look to, to know that you already knew what was going to happen. And Lord, as we look through these scriptures, Lord, help us to examine our hearts make sure that we are pure when you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.